This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region with a view to informing U.S. policy makers and businesses. Our guests in this episode are Nadej Rolan and Rush Doshi, two leading China strategists. We discussed the recent Belt and Road Forum, assessed the strengths and weaknesses of the Belt and Road Initiative to date, and its implications for the United States across political, economic, financial, and informational dimensions, and more. Let me briefly introduce our guests. Their more extensive bios are listed in the show notes to this podcast. Nadej Rolan is a senior fellow for political and security affairs at NBR. Her research focuses mainly on China's foreign and defense policy, as well as the impact of China's rise on Eurasia. Drawing on her 20 years of experience as a French government official, she's also examined the prospects for transatlantic cooperation towards Asia. Dr. Rush Doshi is the Brookings Yale Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Brookings Institution and Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. He is also special advisor to the CEO of the Asia Group, research director for the McCain Institute's Kissinger Fellowship Series on U.S.-China relations, and an adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security. We hope you enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Now, without further ado, here are Nadej and Rush. Nadej, Rush, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you very Dan. much. The second Belt and Road Forum concluded the last week of April. We saw more than 5,000 delegates representing more than 150 countries, 36 world leaders, all who've gathered to listen to what she had to say. There were also opportunities to make deals on the side. The last Belt and Road Forum was in 2017. So let me start here. What were the major developments that happened between that first Belt and Road Forum in 2017 and the second one recently in April 2019? Um, I would say that the main development is the pushback against the Belt and Road. Uh, since uh, 2017, um, there's been an increasing wave of discontent and criticism, uh, both from major countries and also recipient Belt and Road countries. Um, both on the geopolitical intention and on the um, you know the financial conditions and the and the, the, the nefarious practices um, that, that China is carrying in Belt and Road. So I think that's that's the main I would see that as the main event that has happened since the last forum last year uh, two years ago. Rush, do you want to wait on this? Sure, I completely agree. And I would just add one small thing that uh, Nadej has already written about and that I've also written about as well, which was a speech that President Xi gave in 2018 um, in response in part to some of the backlash. And this was a speech that was given on the fifth anniversary, essentially, of the Belt and Road. What was interesting is in that speech, he teases a lot of the themes that have su- subsequently been emphasized, you know, more high-quality projects, better branding, better supervision, et cetera. So in addition to the backlash, we've seen an attempt at recalibration which suggests that, you know, at least in the eyes of top Chinese leaders, the Belt and Road may have obstacles, but it's not going anywhere. So it's not going anywhere. We've seen some pushback. We've seen China recalibrate, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but, but let me ask for the forum itself, what was she trying to achieve? In, in 2017, they announced that they're going to have this forum organized regularly. And so that was the time to do it. It was two years after the first one. So I think we should expect to have another third forum, maybe in two years, maybe in three years, not so sure. Um, So the expectations, I think it's just to create this rhythm of 
um, you know, gathering of leaders around the world who are coming to Beijing to discuss um, Belt and Road, but also beyond that, developing uh, or development um, um, strategies and so on and so forth, or or other issues really. Um, the difference between the two, I think, it's really a difference in mostly a difference in tone. The first one was really, really sort of glorious and a lot of a lot of uh, information propaganda mm. around it uh, this one was more subdued in a way uh, the tone was also more low-key more reassuring less emphatic as in the first one more leaders coming I think 11 more uh, than the first one but all in all it was more I think yeah more low-key the tone was different was the message different I think that there were some areas where the message was uh, different in both, you know, explicitly and implicitly. So implicitly, just the very fact that the tone was subdued suggested, again, uh, that Beijing didn't want to trump that this as some kind of a massive geostrategic initiative. They wanted to be seen as much more of a kind of cooperative investment initiative. Um, so it wasn't all about China. It was also about other countries. So that was the tonal shift. And implicit in that, there is a message. Explicitly, you know, I think he hit on some of the same themes that he hit on in 2018. In the speech, which at that point didn't get as much uh, coverage, and that includes again this importance on uh, its emphasis on high-quality projects. You know, in that speech, President Xi had sort of talked about how a lot of this is back in 2018. A lot of the big picture, sort of the foundations of Belt and Road had been laid, and it was now time for sort of more fine brushwork. And I think, in other words, more attention to, to detail. You know, smaller projects in some cases, more of a direct linkage that shows that people benefit from the projects. And I think those messages were sort of reiterated here, as well as an environmental message, which was certainly teased in the run-up to the forum, and then, of course, was accentuated at the forum. Yeah, the, the really the symposium that uh, Xi Jinping chaired that last um, August, mm -hmm. August 2018, uh, he really gave some indications about what the recalibration phase would look like, and, and Rush just mentioned uh, some of them, and you can already see that uh, translated into the language that we heard at the forum. Um, so you can see that it's already you know, starting to evolve in, in this way, at least at the rhetorical level, which we also need to, you know, to make the difference between what Beijing or Xi Jinping announces and then how does that get translated in reality. This, you know, this rhetoric about uh, lean and green and clean and anti-corruption and transparent projects, how is that really going to uh, happen on the ground? Is, is China capable of changing its modus operandi? I would be very skeptical about that. Are there any other key takeaways that you uh, drew from the summit? Sorry, from the forum. Well, I just think that um, one other one that I would just accentuate the point that uh, it's going to be hard for China to change its approach. I mean, so many of the problems with the Belt and Road, on one level, are fundamental problems with infrastructure investments. So that's just hard to do. Mm -hmm. But then that's compounded by China's own system, which makes it even harder to mm -hmm. do. And both those problems aren't going to go away just because she has been giving good speeches. I mean, uh, like Nadesh said, and like I was uh, discussing earlier, that 2018 address already happened. In the intervening year, it isn't as if they solved all the problems, right? So if they couldn't solve the problems after 2018, what makes us think they're going to solve them after 2019? It's a long-term process, and it requires political will and interest, and it's just not clear that they've got that. Um, I'd say fundamentally, um, uh, and this is sort of a separate point, not really related to the, to the forum, 
But it's also the case that the Belt and Road has proven quite resilient, even despite these challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, Sri Lanka went back and asked for another billion in highway loans after, mm-hmm. for, you know, coughing up a port. Uh, Malaysia, you know, was really criticizing, you know, under my theory, the Belt and Road, and all of a sudden, they renegotiate this train project, uh, reducing the cost only by a third. You know, Pakistan was complaining, but Beijing really hasn't changed its tune very much, and the Pakistanis have quieted down a bit. Uh, you know, t- there's lots of other cases just like these which show that when there was criticism, countries, you know, uh, got a little bit of consideration maybe from Beijing, and that was enough to keep the projects going and to keep the initiative alive. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. And the most striking of those examples that you mentioned, Rush, um, to me was really Malaysia because last year, I mean, was it last year or two years ago, I lost track of, t- of time. Everybody was focusing on what Mahathir had said. He used very harsh words against Beijing, you know, saying we don't want a new version of colonialism in the region. We don't want unequal treaties. I mean, he was really harsh and he said it directly in Beijing, too. I mean, he, he showed a lot of courage to just tell truth to power, if I may say so. Um, and then suddenly, you know, all these negotiations and, and as Rush said, going back um, to at least one of the one of their projects that were back on the table and having a speech delivered at the Belt and Road Forum that was much more you know amenable and nice uh, to the initiative so for me this is really a, a, a key example of, of you know China is the big neighbor it is a key player in the region you need to find ways to accommodate China somehow. Yeah, and one thing I'd add is, um, you know, we're getting interesting data now, right? We're able to see when does Beijing renegotiate and when doesn't it renegotiate? And to me, we couldn't answer that question as effectively in the past, but it's getting a lot easier to answer because we have a case in Malaysia, big renegotiation. We have cases with less of it in um, Djibouti, less of it in Pakistan. There's um, some unofficial uh, discussion that you know Djibouti may have an issue with Chinese loans and China is not really willing to go down very far in its interest rates. So why, again, in one place does China renegotiate and why not the other? We'll have to find out. More data will give us a better answer. But right now, my initial theory is when a country has a lot of legitimacy or really matters for China's initiative, like Malaysia, they're willing to compromise. The fact that Mahathir has standing in the developing world, the fact that he got up and criticized the United States and now is turning that criticism towards China, that's very powerful and needs to be addressed. So Beijing worked to address it. Other countries that don't have that kind of same authority, they may not get such a great deal. It's a fascinating point, the reversal of position. And you explain a bit on why China would renegotiate these deals. My question is, why are the recipient countries renegotiating these deals? It's striking from a top-line newspaper story if you see that they've gone. Sri Lanka has gone from giving up their port to finding another deal with the Belt and Road. And yet they're continuing to do these despite the questions of um, the, the debt trap questions and um, swapping equity over loans. And yet we continue to see countries sign up to more and more Belt and Road projects. Why? I think one of the answers, uh, and Rush probably has more to say about it, is that there are not so many ways to get money. Um, and so other lenders would be more 
fearful of investing in countries where the business environment and the, the legislation is not great. Um, and that's, I mean, again, China has not invented infrastructure financing. Uh, these investments have been going on for a long time, but they are very risky investments. Their, their return is very small financially, um, and they need to operate, in a, again, in a business environment that's amenable to those kind of investments. And many of those countries don't have the legislation, they don't have... Um, the, 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 the shoulders. Um, so private lenders are, are a bit cold-feeted about, do you say that in English? Cold-feeted? <laughs> cold-footed, I cold-footed. think. Is right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they have cold feet <laughs> uh, about going and to invest in those countries. And then China comes and apparently doesn't really mind about giving those uh, those loans to to countries and also the other thing um, the reverse side of things is that most uh, international institutional lenders come with political conditions attached to the loans um, that include transparency anti-corruption measures um, um, good governance standards um, you know civil society improvement and etc etc that china doesn't have um, so those countries might find this so-called no strings attached strings are attached but in a different way um, no strings attached um, um, no condition appealing and that's why they turn to china rush you're telling me that she is making announcements of greater standards and um, better efficiency in these deals. And yet we're hearing um, that these standards still don't meet some of the basic requirements um, that we expect. What's the reality here? Yeah, actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just mention a report that I did with some colleagues uh, at the Center for New American Security on this kind of question, sort of, is the Belt and Road meeting some very common sense standards, not US standards, not European standards, but just standards that pretty much everyone thinks are important. And certainly that lots of other investors are able to meet, for example, the Japanese, and we kind of show that the Japanese projects that we cover were very high standards. Um, and these standards are, you know, the ones we talked about, corruption, transparency, local benefit to the population, right? Uh, try not to be too ge- geopolitically risky, so, you know, not as much on uh, essential telecommunications infrastructure or port projects. And just by and large, when you kind of go through our list, which was about seven standards, and we looked at 10 Belt and Road projects, not the famous ones, some that were less famous, in a wide variety of countries, in a wide variety of industries, and we found that much of the time these standards weren't met. And they could have been met, but they simply weren't. And so, you know, the reality is that this is a way of doing business that's advantageous to the party state and to certain companies. It's also a way of doing business that kind of fits with some of the local uh, political culture in many cases as well. So it's not entirely Beijing's fault, but I think a good amount of the blame does lay there. And ultimately, it's going to be hard for China to increase the standards without serious political will. And the closest thing to to that that we've seen so far is this discussion that Belt and Road projects might be branded, almost like a franchise. Some projects will be given the branding and others won't. This is certainly an attempt to prevent everything from being branded as Belt and Road and give the party a bit more control. Uh, So we'll see how that works out. But the question is, if an infrastructure project happens, it's not under the Belt and Road, and it doesn't meet high standards, doesn't that still matter? In other words, sure. They can have a great standard system or a franchising system, but there's going to be plenty of projects that don't meet it. And that sort of brings up a larger point, which is that we too often fix it in the Belt and Road itself. 
we should focus on the individual projects, right? A lot of the projects, as Adesh mentioned earlier, a lot of them began before the Belt and Road even existed. And so we should be focusing um, not just on Xi's rhetoric about this larger initiative, but on what they're actually doing on the ground. Yeah, I completely agree with that. This is really key. Belt and Road now is, uh, you know, it's it has become so pervasive into uh, not only the discourse, uh, it's like nowadays China, the, the Chinese official rhetoric about, I don't know, climate change doesn't, they don't talk about climate change, they talk about a green belt and road. They don't talk about innovation in information technologies, but it's the digital Silk Road. Uh, and you can go on and on and on about how much Belt and Road has now completely, um, I don't know, it's uh, invaded the, the, the discourse, the official discourse in the foreign policy. And so it's difficult to say, is that a Belt and Road project? Also, the different dimensions of Belt and Road, you know, it's about it's also about financial integration. It's also about bringing people-to-people -people exchanges. So do you include a scholarship as Belt and Road scholarship, Belt and Road project? Probably yes, if it's a Belt and Road country. How do you assess whether it's a Belt and Road country or not? This, you see, so it's like everything is going on through the Belt and Road. This is... I believe, I still believe it's a grand strategy. It's also an instrument to support this grand strategy and a political and geopolitical objective. It is also become, uh, again, pretty much everything. But if you really want to assess where everything is going, I think Rush is absolutely right, that you need to look at the local level, what is going on on the ground, what project you're talking about instead of and generalization about belt and road are really 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 dif difficult really difficult to make i completely agree and i think that um that strategic component is there whether we use the term belt and road or we we don't because the kind of rationale that underlies many of these projects is still there in beijing so i would i would uh completely agree and i would say that to kind of um raise a possibility you know if the belt and road becomes a framework or the paradigm through which china engages other countries or other regions that's pretty interesting. And we've seen that the Belt and Road, now not only does it have these sort of people-to-people -people components and cultural components and archaeological components, but it has legal components, right? It has this component, which is um, our alternative arbitral bodies that sort of are outside of the ICSID process and other processes. What these look like and what they'll mean for the future, I don't know, but it is parallel and it is interesting. Final quick point on Belt and Road is there's been a lot more discussion um, in the last few years about how Belt and Road will be secured. And so I think we should think a little bit more about the Belt and Road's sort of securitization and even some aspects of its militarization going forward. That's a great segue. <laughs> we have a good, we have a project that's going oh, really? to, yeah, come to fruition in a few months. Which, oh, what question are you looking into? So our, our starting question was realizing how big this is and how much China is going abroad. More, more citizens and workers, Chinese, uh, working around the world on these projects, more assets that are uh, created uh, by by Chinese companies. You know, at some point, the Belt and Road countries are mostly vulnerable. They call that the arc of instability sometimes. And so um, at some point, how do the Chinese authorities are going to be able to protect those assets and people? 
And we thought that should be a question that Beijing is starting to look into, right? And so what we have, what we are trying to do with um, a half a dozen different authors is looking at, again, trying to, to take that same perspective that we did when, when we uh, started the, pro- the China, Eurasia, China Eurasian Century project, which is looking at the inside out, looking ha- at how the military and security elites in, and strategic thinkers in Beijing are looking at the challenges and how to secure the belt and the road. So we will have uh, people looking at um, the normative dimension, um, the, the normative constraints like the non-interference policy. Is that framework evolving or not? We're going to have people looking at the C4ISR, the, the digital and space component of the Belt and Road, the expeditionary force. Is, it, is this going to happen? The basing, uh, naval bases. Uh, we're going to have a look at the military-to-military and security uh, exchanges and cooperation. So uh, after you've read the book, you will have a pretty good idea of where the securitization is going and how, again, the, the, the military and security thinkers in Beijing are thinking about it. I'm getting this sense that in trying to visualize the Belt and Road, it's sort of like looking at a pointillism painting where you need to step back and see the whole picture. But to really appreciate what's going on, you've got to go and look at at a granular level, like you were both saying, at individual projects, at individual functional areas, and see and grade them based on individual grades of what they're doing. Um, and one of the key lanes we need to be paying attention to is uh, the financial component of it. And you had both discussed earlier that one of the key reasons Belt and Road recipient countries are participating is because they need the funds. And there aren't many avenues out there, um, but the Belt and Road Forum, Belt and Road Initiative is one of them. How is China using its financial tools um, both to uh, support the Belt and Road, but what are proper, uh, perhaps its broader strategic ambitions? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the financial linkage to the Belt and Road is very interesting. And there's a lot of ways in which this kind of um, this sort of sector cuts across different Belt and Road priorities. You know, on the one hand, clearly we've seen that uh, indebtedness can be problematic for countries and it can have security implications. And the famous case of this is, of course, Sri Lanka, although depending on who you talk to, Djibouti may be a similar kind of case going forward as well. And in those cases, we see countries that take on large amounts of loans uh, for uh, investments that end up not producing all that much economic activity, fundamentally struggling to repay them, and then having to make certain kinds of concessions to Beijing, uh, because Beijing in some cases isn't willing to easily always write off the debt. Now, there's been some more research to show that Beijing does in some cases make financial concessions, but it, the question is not, does it make concessions? It's does it make concessions when it wants something specific and then withhold concessions in that instance? So I would just push back on some of the larger debate that's happening, which says, no, no, China doesn't always act this way. Sure, but when it matters, it certainly does seem to act a certain way. There's been a second set of arguments saying that well, this debt trap diplomacy argument is is incorrect, um, and that if you kind of look at Beijing, they're not really trying to create indebtedness for the purpose of exploiting that indebtedness. Um, you know, that's an interesting argument, but I always thought that the debt trap diplomacy discussion was sort of a straw man, or maybe even a red herring. The question isn't whether Beijing is always, in every case, trying to create indebtedness. 
The question is, once such indebtedness exists, does it take advantage of it? And what no one who's skeptical of the debt trap diplomacy argument can deny is that Belt and Road investments create leverage. Now, whether they're intentionally creating it, unintentionally creating it, whether it's a mix of the two, the reality is still that they create leverage. And then the reality beyond that is that leverage has at some point been exercised over those countries. So that's you know two financial components. I'll bring up a third one very quickly, which is that the Belt and Road also is about Chinese financial power. And so we've seen Beijing talk about using the Belt and Road to promote RMB internationalization. Now that hasn't happened as aggressively as it could have. You know, for example, SOEs working with local partners being forced to transact in renminbi, other kind of measures that could be taken to push the renminbi further along. But it's possible we'll see more of that going forward, especially if, as some discussed, Beijing might be having some issues on its dollar holdings. It may basically have issues financing aspects of the Belt and Road going into the future. So, Rush, you authored our chapter on financial architectural structure in our recent Strategic Asia um, volume on uh, China's expanding strategic ambitions. And um, in, in the chapter, you argue that China's using this leverage, these tools, in order to reshape the international finance uh, financial structure. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that is and what that looks like? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Beijing recognizes maybe it's partly um, ironic, maybe also partly fundamental um, from sort of the Marxist Leninist historical materialist foundation that uh, the base structure matters, um, that the economy matters, and that certain things that emanate from it, including the financial system, matter as well for power. Um, certainly, Marxists are very attuned to the idea that financial capital has all kinds of implications for politics. And um, China's not different, and maybe it's even mundane that they would think that, because lots of other countries think that too, that happen to not be Marxist. But I think if you are Marxist, you definitely can't forget about it. Now, what does that mean practically? Um, practically speaking, uh, we've seen China, in my view, target certain elements of the substructure of American financial power. In some cases, what they're trying to do is perhaps undermine aspects of that substructure. In other cases, what they're trying to do is duplicate aspects for themselves of that substructure. So to get specific, you know, China has sort of pushed forward alternative payments and clearing mechanisms, an alternative to SWIFT. Um, you know, it's very much in its early stages, and it may not amount to much at all. But it's worth noting that they didn't really need to do that. I mean, there was certainly adequate infrastructure for them to do international payments without creating this alternative. And in many ways, the alternative comes after the United States used SWIFT against uh, Iran and, uh, and to some degree, you know, other countries, you know, North Korea, other specific actors as well. And so Beijing recognized that that was a problem and they kind of created an alternative. Now, um, SWIFT is interesting because uh, SWIFT is just a messaging system, right? Uh, SWIFT doesn't actually send money. It's just a way for banks to talk to each other. Um, then there's a process called clearance and settling. And SWIFT approached Beijing and they said, hey, look, you need a messaging system, just use us. You, know, you, do, you do the clearance and settling yourself. Uh, but Beijing is building an alternative messaging system, right? Not just an alternative clearance and settling system. It's duplicating SWIFT in a way that SWIFT said, you know, you don't need to do. So there's been a little bit of tension between the two on that, um, which is interesting. And I think the duplication suggests China's ultimate interest in bypassing elements of the U.S. financial structure. There are a few other examples, and I'll be, I'll be brief on those. We've seen China's interest over the last decade in alternative credit rating agencies that's been challenging to get off the ground, but certainly there's been an interest there. Uh, Europe has also somehow sometimes taken an interest in these, and the reason why is there's a recognition that credit rating agencies, especially for sovereigns, um, you know, can shape capital flows. They can determine whether your country is able to remain solvent, whether your companies are able to get funded, et cetera. And so China does see a reason to contest what it sees as American dominance of those standards. And finally, we've seen China, and this is kind of a third area, there's many other areas as well, 
um, push forward alternative payment mechanisms in the digital domain. So the Chinese ambassador to Turkey, for example, this past year said that Turkey should start using WeChat and Alipay for international payments, and it shouldn't rely as much on alternative mechanisms. And I think we're going to see more of that going forward. Um, the state's going to be pushing these apps, uh, and that's going to be another way to kind of uh, get Chinese financial power a little bit more, um, you know, to sort of enhance it. To follow up on that, one of the key reasons why they might do all these things and push in all these lanes is because it provides them leverage and they can shape the system. Exactly. But it seems like it's an extraordinary lift to get these off the ground when they're extremely difficult. Was there something happening in the environment that triggered um, this desire to recreate a new set of international um, uh, messaging and financing systems? I think that China has always been sensitive to the way that U.S. economic and financial power can be used against it. That was certainly true in the 1990s during the debates over permanent normal trade, uh, PNTR, and, and most favored nation status, um, and the WTO as well. And there was an internal discourse in China saying, we've got to get this stuff so that the Americans can't boss us around. And, um, you know, so what that suggests is a sensitivity to American economic power. Now, finance is just another arena of American economic power, perhaps one of the most powerful of them, especially since that um, American advantage really accelerated in the 1990s and 2000s. And so um, I think if you ask me sort of what is the signature event that helped push Beijing to say this is a priority, it'd be twofold. It'd be one, sort of the financial crisis and the opportunities that it created, that Beijing perceived to challenge certain aspects of the substructure of international finance. But the second one as well, which is the use one might say the overuse of American financial instruments, which creates a very clear awareness in China, in Russia, in Europe, and other places that American financial power is very serious. And, um, you know, I think if you sort of ask uh, ourselves uh, what was what would be sort of the, the greatest threat to it, it's, it's not necessarily Beijing's investments alone. It's also the fact that overuse could drive Europe to find ways to bypass American financial power. And once that happens, I think you'll see a real bedrock of American hegemony start to erode. Hmm. And as part of that challenge, and as China's expanding its power, you know, we're, we've seen different phases, right? The first phase was the initiation phase and the socialization phase of Belt and Road. Um, early in this conversation, we talked about there's been a counter response to that. Um, and it, uh, so let me turn to Nadej. What phase are we in now? Um, and, and, uh, and what can we see? What, what should we expect to happen next in the Belt and Road? I think we're in the recalibration, <coughs> sorry, in the recalibration phase um, um, that, as we said, has been initiated uh, at the end of the summer 2018. Uh, but um, ha so how is that going to translate exactly? I think the first phase was really about you know, creating some momentum. So very strong on the on the narrative, creating, signing MOUs and contracts on very visible and big projects so that people could start to see that it was not just words, but things going on on the ground. Um, now, my feeling, because again, we, we're just starting to see it emerge, my feeling about the second phase, we're going to, if, if I just follow what Xi Jinping said, and, and if people are obedient, uh, we're probably going to see uh, an, an effort on the propaganda side, but maybe, maybe not so much at the global level, just like what we saw in the first phase, but more um, 
refined and oriented towards the local public opinions. So um, here too, you know, we're talking about the difference between the generalizations and what's going on on the ground. And I think this is what you need to look at in every single country. How does the local media, maybe with the help of the Chinese uh, uh, media corporations, uh, you know, broadcasting and, and diffusing the idea that Belt and Road is good for the local population? I think that one of the battlefields is going to be much more local. Um, another one, I think, after, again, after this first phase of very visible big infrastructure contracts and projects getting off the ground, we are going to be probably seeing more of the other connectivities. Um, you know, Belt and Road is based around five connectivities. Uh, infrastructure is just one of them. So we're going to see more of the soft side of Belt and Road, including the people-to-people you know, exchanges, with me, which means scholarships, development of um, corporations at different level, incu- including at the security level, uh, gaining uh, more, or rather getting more into the local environment, understanding better what's going on, again, at the local level. So, and maybe not as big and splashy um, 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 projects. One small indication of that is, for example, in Pakistan, as you know, CPEC is probably the most developed of the corridors Uh, Right now, uh, Pakistan has been extremely enthusiastic about cooperating with China on this. And CPEC is... Oh, sorry, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Um, And probably the most advanced. I mean, it has a lot of infrastructure, transportation, uh, fiber optic, uh, but also lots of other corporations going on. And here, um, Pakistan has been one of the countries that has uh, tried to renegotiate some of the deals. And maybe, and, and, and so here, Beijing has responded in saying, okay, we're going to maybe develop some um, health oriented programs. So you see, this is still Belt and Road, but it's the soft side of it, trying to be to present it as a, again, as a positive effect for the local population. I think this is the phase two of BRI. And as they're pushing the lever up on these soft issues, does that mean they're pulling the lever down on infrastructure and some of the other elements they've been pushing forward or no, pushing be- up? Or no, because those- it's going to be a continuation of it. Uh, um, this is one of the elements that are um, going on, the, the projects are ongoing and some of them uh, have not started yet. So we're going to s- continue to see this infrastructure. But I think really in, instead of having, again, those big ones, maybe more smaller ones and working more at the local level instead of at, you know, having this big rhetorical international level. The way it's framed, the way it's planned, the way it's being implemented right now, it seems like for China, things are firing on on all cylinders. Are there any vulnerabilities that you see uh, having seen uh, the Belt and Road um, Initiative conceived, planned, and implemented um, that are new or are different than what we've seen in its early stages? 
questions to bring back? Uh, well, um, we talked a little bit about one possible vulnerability, which might be that Beijing may not be able to afford the Belt and Road as, as, as much going forward, and some issues with uh, their dollar reserves potentially. Uh, there's been an interesting policy shift within Beijing, uh, or rather within China, by Beijing. I'm, I'm not sure how authoritative this is, but apparently they've reduced the amount uh, of dollars you can sort of withdraw from a, a dollar-denominated bank account within China. That's kind of an interesting policy. It certainly doesn't suggest it's not a, it's not a, it's a policy that doesn't suggest confidence. Um, whether or not there's a Belt and Road implication for that kind of concern will be interesting to see as well. Uh, I really want to uh, just stress that I agree very much with Nadezhda's point about the information environment around Belt and Road in other countries sort of being a target of Beijing. I, I read somewhere that at the Belt and Road Forum there was sort of a Xinhua kind of um, uh, cooperative effort with other news agencies, sort of uh, some kind of partnership signed. Yeah. So we'll see if there's a more active attempt to uh, shape local coverage of these projects. I think there almost certainly will be, but it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, and the whole purpose of that, of course, would be to address other vulnerabilities, um, which involve you know corruption, feelings that the projects don't provide enough local benefits, that they're environmentally damaging, et cetera. So that's a slightly sort of a mitigation um, effort, but ultimately, you know, the biggest vulnerabilities will remain people being upset about it and uh, China's perhaps future inability to afford it. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I agree with, with Russia. I think um, the information side of it, it's, it's fascinating, really. Because, uh, you know, based in the U.S., we tend to see most of the observers tend to see it from Washington's eyes, which is not necessarily the right way to look at it. Um, but, but really, um, the, the amount of effort and resources that Beijing dedicates to appeal to the developing world is kind of mind-boggling. Uh, and coming at, coming at it from a lot of different angles and that information piece of it is really fascinating. Rush mentioned the, the Xinhua component. Um, Xinhua is not the only one. Jemin uh, Jobao is or the People's Daily is also involved in an effort to create um, international Belt and Road International Media Corporation. So the idea here is that they're bringing regularly to Beijing dozens of local journalists they're training them for three four weeks um local in china or local local from uh, sorry countries? from from developing countries I uh i mean hosting them for three to four weeks um training them giving them sometimes some material that those very poor countries don't necessarily have making them tour china to you know see how beautiful a country china is and everything that the party has achieved um and also uh, providing content. So this is a technique that in influence operations in China is called um, you know, using a boat, a uh, foreign boat, uh, so to go out at sea. So they're providing the content that the local media corporations or the TV channels or the local radio in, I don't know, in Zambia or in Senegal are going to use, um, the audience, the local audience is not going to see anywhere that this is actually produced in Beijing by Jamin Jabao or by Xinhua. They're going to trust their local news outlet um, 
And in reality, this is Chinese propaganda delivered through, uh, I mean, locally. And that's how I think the, uh, you know, the, the second phase of Belt and Road is going to go through. That we, this is really something that is going to have an impact, not just um, about shaping uh, the perception of Belt and Road, but of China in general in, in the developing world. And I think this is very, you know, we were talking earlier about how smart uh, the Belt and Road idea was. I think this is really one very smart idea. How about, you know, shaping the perceptions and penetrating the minds of the local people in a very low-key, very efficient way? It doesn't cost a lot of money to do that. Is any of that happening, happening with the U.S. as well? Is China bringing U.S. journalists over to do that type of exchange? I have not Do heard of that. I, I have heard of uh, U.S. journalists being in, or, or Western journalists maybe being invited to go and visit Xinjiang, for example. But I'm not sure that they've gone through that kind of training sessions. <clears throat> now, as you mentioned that perhaps we shouldn't be viewing China and all of its aspects from Washington, D.C., and yet here we are sitting in Washington, D.C. This is the headquarters of U.S. Government, Inc. And so how should the U.S. respond? On There are multiple fronts we talked about today, but if there are any key ones that you'd like to highlight, I'd, uh, we'd love to hear it. I think I'm going to stick to my old one, which is Belt and Road is not just about infrastructure. And if you're trying to play catch up, you're going to lose. Uh, so you need to identify exactly what is strategic for the U.S. interests and not go after every single thing that China is investing into. That's the first one. The second one, it's not just about infrastructure. And all the dimensions that we talked about today are as important as the infrastructure development. So you need to pay attention to the developing world. You need to pay attention to your... Uh, you know, liberal democracy, democrat, uh, democratic allies, because they are also into this game and getting pulled towards Beijing more and more. Um, you need to make sure that you have scholarships for students who come uh, to the U.S. So you need to work on the narrative front. You need to work on the perception and influence side, the political warfare side. Uh, it's, it's a very, very big and multidimensional project. As I said the first time we talked together, I think looking at China's Belt and Road is really looking at China's rise. So how do you address Belt and Road equals how do you address China's rise? And it's not just through that little tiny prism of infrastructure building. It's really much more comprehensive than this. Rush? Yeah, that's, uh, I don't have much to add to that. I think that's exactly right, and I very much agree. Um, you know, going back to the information question, um, because Belt and Road is not just about infrastructure, it's also about legitimacy, information, being seen as a public goods provider. Uh, one thing that is going to be effective and that we've already seen is effective is having journalists who can report on this issue on the ground and sort of convey the truth having media institutions that are independent of Beijing that can then sort of convey the truth, um, having distributors in these countries that can, you know, uh, also kind of make sure that uh, digital channels are reaching their audience or that newspapers are reaching their audience or that internet infrastructure and censoring content. In other words, there's a whole information pipeline 
from the journalist all the way to the consumer that Beijing has sort of situated itself at various points on. This is something that we're working on a little bit at Brookings now, a project on information influence operations. And so looking at that pipeline, there's a lot of opportunities for the U.S. to be involved, to empower journalists, to kind of fund media independence, to promote nonprofits and activist groups to do better research. And I think that stuff is very effective. Um, you know, a lot of Belt and Road, a lot of the way that China conducts its, its affairs abroad has an element of lead capture. It has an element of, we'll bring in the business, we'll bring in the loans, we'll bring in the investment, and certain segments of your country will absolutely win. And often those will be the empowered segments. And when you look at Belt and Road corruption, not paying off the poor, right? They're paying off the rich and the powerful. And so ultimately what this comes down to is accountability and transparency. And those are sort of cliche arguments, but that doesn't make them any less effective and powerful. And so what I'd like to see from Washington going forward is, is, a, is a real informational strategy that focuses not only on the narrative, but on the structure that is empowering the media structure that gets this right with funding, with support, nonprofits, et cetera, whatever it takes. Um, and I think if we do that, then there'll be um, more skepticism of certain elements about whether they're harmful to these countries. And ultimately, these countries will be better able to act in their own self-interest. The answer isn't for countries to not take Chinese investment, right? Mm -hmm. That's never the answer. Mm -hmm. The answer is that Chinese investment should be helpful and useful and accountable and transparent, and it should meet standards. The best way to make sure that happens is to empower these states through information. Final point, we can also empower these states through technical support. And we've seen mm -hmm. a lot more of that happen you know, in Myanmar and other places. Mm -hmm. and, and countries are asking for it. They're asking for legal support to make sure that they don't make big mistakes dealing with China. You know, the United States has experience and other great powers have experience dealing with China, and they have expertise, and smaller countries don't. So those would be my two recommendations to add to um, sort of what Nadej sort of already mentioned, which is, is absolutely right. Um, and these are cheap. These are cheap things to do, um, but they're very, very powerful. Both fantastic points and recommendations. We're nearing the end of our time. I want to ask two quick questions. The questions are quick. And the answers may be long. <clears throat> but so first is that you both spend a great deal of time researching this issue, informing um, po our policymakers, the broader public, is there anything that um, is obvious to you and you've talked a great deal about that surprisingly a lot of people have not caught on to? Well, I think we talked about it today, really, you know, the financial aspects. People don't necessarily think about that as one of the, the, the parts of the system that China wants to, to alter or to, to, to change. Um, the, those other sort of soft dimensions of Belt and Road, people don't really pay attention to that. Although it's it's starting to to um, to to kick off because because there's so much attention to it, and as Rush mentions, you know some um, media reports shedding light on certain countries, what's going on there. So everything is helpful to to bring more awareness. But I agree with you that it's. Uh, there's still a lot of misunderstanding. We, we need to do more of these podcasts for <laughs> people to listen to what it is exactly. It's, it's interesting. I've been interacting with uh, many different audiences in the last two years, and they're still trying to wrestle with it. But I, I don't blame them. It's so big. Um, I spend most of my time trying to do this, and I cannot say that I've figured it out completely. Uh, so um, for anyone who's interested in you know, world affairs and trying to pick up on, oh, what, what's this? What is it that's going on? It's, I, I, I understand why some of the dimensions are not very well known yet. 
We we're love- here to provide you know more knowledge. Absolutely, <laughs> we both love to invite you back on the next round. Rush, do you have thoughts on this? Uh, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, other areas that are not receiving as much attention this as MBR project on the securitization and militarization of elements of the Belt and Road, I think is is really going to be very timely. Um, there's not a lot of literature on this, and mm-hmm. I think uh, that'll make a huge contribution. So I think that's an area where we certainly need to do more thinking. And as you've heard from us uh, both, you know, the informational aspect is going to be essential as well. So to the economics, I would add sort of the hard military and the soft informational components mm-hmm. as places where U.S. policy needs to sort of think, you know, where it needs to sort of engage and think a little bit more about the implications and where recipient countries especially need to start thinking about the implications of some of their engagements with, with China. Again, the issue is not engaging China or working with China. The issue is always how and what are the implications. And that's what countries around the world and even you know, the United States are trying to figure out. Just how do we how do we deal with China in a way that's mutually advantageous and allows us to preserve some degree of autonomy, freedom of maneuver, and our values. So Nadej, you are our first interviewee for our first podcast in Washington, D.C. Uh, and during that interview, um, you gave she an A for the conceptualization of the Belt and Road, and it was still too early on implementation. We're nearing the end of the spring semester. Many students are uh, finishing uh, their final exams. Rush, Nadej, what grade would you give at this point um, on the uh, recalibration of um, Baishi in response to the Belt and Road? It's too early to say. <laughs> we call that an incomplete. We give him an incomplete. You know, he has to revise and resubmit his paper. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Nadej Rush, thanks for a fantastic, uh, insightful conversation. Uh, I, I know that I, I've learned a lot and changed my views of the Belt and Road after this conversation. I hope our uh, listeners do as well. Um, thanks so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much.